Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. You're listening to On the Tape with Dan Nathan and Danny Moses. I'm Guy Adami. Lots to talk about today. We have stocks at record highs. Rates are going higher, Dan Nathan. We're going to talk about that and new warnings about the Delta variant later. We'll go off the tape with our good friend, the baller himself, Brian Kelly. But before we get into it, before we get into it, I had one of those moments today that are just unbelievable. It just shows you how crazy the world is. Vin Scully, the Vin Scully, followed me on Twitter. That is badassery at the highest level. I am like on cloud, not 9, 10, 11, like 15, Dan. Uh, I mean, I knew you and Kirk Gibson were always kind of tied. You you make fun of me. You make fun. That's a huge thing for somebody like me. Vin Scully, Fordham grad, by the way, following me on Twitter. By the way, don't say he follows 100. He doesn't. He follows like 300 people. He could follow anybody. He chose to follow me. Interesting. You don't care. I do care. You don't care. I do care. Uh, I think it's great. Lifelong Yankee fan, just enamored with the fact that the Dodgers announcer last 50 years followed him. It's, you should be. The man is a le- – there are a few legends, living legends. He happens to be one of them. Anyway, all right, so let me ask you this here, guy down Talk to me. Before we really get into it, would you give it all up? Would you give all up this financial punditry? If they gave you a seat up Who's in they? Yankee Who's Stadium, they? the Yankee organization, and they let you do like play-by-play or color or Done. something like that, you would do it. Done. You'd, everything would be out. I think I could do a decent job – Broadcasting Yankee, given the opportunity. Do you think you can judge a fly ball better than John Sterling? Well, the he, man is 80-something years old. Give him a little bit of a break. He was the Atlanta break. Hawks announcer when I was a kid growing up in Atlanta. Did you know that? I did know Dominique that. Dominique is magnifique. See, you folks don't see this because this is what they call audio, so you don't see the video portion. Dan is absolutely rolling his eyes. Okay, go ahead, Dan. We meandered long What are we doing here? I, I, we're literally in August. We're in mid-August almost here, right? And everything you could have thrown at the high. stock market. Everything, right? This Delta variant. And then we even had warnings about that. We had Southwest Airlines, you know what I mean? Tell us about it. it n- nothing. Now, all you needed to know about that with Southwest Airlines, symbol LUV came out earlier this week and warned on the back of the Delta variant. The initial reaction was the market sold the stock off, stock closed today significantly higher. Same thing happened with Delta Airlines. Why? Because these airlines priced it in back in April. That's when all these airlines topped out and they've been going lower ever since. In my world, Danny Moses is a poker player, I know, because you like the casinos. I do. That, as they say, is a tell. So the market, listen... As a human being, should we be concerned? Absolutely. As a market participant, clearly not. Market has two seven offsuit, and the flop appears to be two twos and a seven. Two I mean, if- seven offsuit, the worst hand you could have yes, in a poker in table. a poker, e- exactly. So I, I don't know, but I can tell you this. My mom's a travel agent, always pretty busy. Obviously, last year was a huge downturn, then it picked up. She hasn't booked a trip in two months. Wait a second. Hold on. We got to slow this. Your mom is a travel agent. She is. She's extraordinaire. By the way, no kidding. Absolutely. So, what if your mom yep. had to go to one place? Given her history, where would you think she would go? Just out of curiosity, right now, given the variant. And no, everything? not right. So stop <laughs> with the. You know, you don't answer a question with a question. Las Vegas. Answer the freaking question. Las Vegas is her favorite. Where does she go in Las Vegas? The win. No kidding. Yeah, yeah. that's fantastic. Where do you think I learned? They took me when I was seven years old into the Hilton Hotel before it burnt down into the kids hotel where they leave you with all these people and you i mean you run around and they you have a little mo green look to you i do actually yeah a little bit yep so the delta variant's not a big deal we shouldn't really care i think listen again as human beings i think it's a big deal you're seeing concerts start you're going to some concert dan nathan soon that that might get canceled i I will tell you this there are cancellations that are happening they're doing the grateful dead the dead in code just sent out well this is really interesting i just want to say this so so all their concerts this summer outdoors so they're they're putting new mandates in place that you either have to have proof of vaccination or a negative pcr test within 48 hours and if you are in the pit, the general admission, you can only be in general admission, okay, where there's no seats, a standing room only, 
if you have a vaccination card. So what I'm saying is you're seeing these changes. They're being put in place. We know that a lot of corporations are pushing back their return to the office sort of thing. So I guess, you know, we've been talking about this, guys, for months. So this is not like new to us. The point that you made about the airline stocks that were trading back above their pre-pandemic levels four months ago, they were pricing in all the good news then, right? So down here, down 25%, maybe less so. But the point that, that we've been making is that this is not going to be a linear recovery. We do not know what happens next year. Well, you can just be spirit air, take hundreds of million dollars from the government, not upgrade your fleet, not be prepared and just squeeze out profit and screw all these passengers, right? Because let's answer this easy. This is easy. We go back to moral hazard again. Ah, They're going to get bailed out. If it gets bad, they're going to get bailed out. And that's it. That is the reason that the market is not down. That's the reason that these stocks aren't down because it just goes over and over again. And that's really all it is. And we've also been talking about this. The S&P and the NASDAQ are not down. There's tons of stocks that trade horribly. There's tons of sectors that trade horribly. And I'm looking at my screens here on Thursday afternoon, and I see Apple up 2%. I see Amazon up a half a percent. I see Microsoft up 1%. I mean, you guys know the drill here, right? And the S&P 500 is up 25 bips. And there it is, people. You could have so much horrible action underneath the hood, but those four or five names just keep this market levitating. They're carrying the broader market, and the question is, at what point can they no longer carry the broader market? But it's been going on for years now, so I would submit in the world of passive investing, where nothing matters except inflows of cash, this market can continue to grind higher, despite what I think. And I do have a lot of thoughts, but you know what? The market wins. I say this all the time. People at me on Twitter Price is truth. What does that mean? The only thing you can base your decisions on is where things are trading. That's where decisions are made. And quite frankly, with S&P 500 all-time high, I don't know what derails it, Danny Moses. I just don't know. Maybe the Epsilon variant got what? I I don't know. I have no idea. But I will say this. We're going to hit a time where you got to get a booster, right? Because if you're going to have a waning vaccination status, which they need to do a better job, like blood tests that can show what antigen level, what I'm not a doctor, but whatever that is, when do you do that? And if there's going to be a slip time between your protection, because it does appear that if you're vaccinated, you're not getting very sick. People are getting sick, but not, not hospital sick. When does that occur? And that's in October, November, who knows, you know, six to seven months from when people got them. So I don't know, man, but it's just the party goes on. May I ask Dan Nathan a question, Danny? Because I know we're probably simpatico on this. Dan, is it okay that I ask you a question? Yeah, I'm here. I'm uh, here for you. When they put letters together, and I say this all the time, I always forget what it's called, but like they yeah, put- It's called an acronym. An acronym. Thank you. It's an acronym. Yeah. So what does- CPI stand for CPI Consumer Price Index. Consumer Price Index. So that's the prices that consumers pay. Is that correct? correct? Do you know what automatopoeia is? Excuse me. <laughs> do you know what automatopoeia is? It's what is? I have to do every night about three o'clock in the morning. Yeah, that's pretty good. You good. like that? That was like a, a dad joke wrapped in a boomer joke. Well, it's true. You asked. Scully will love that oh, one. Yeah. So here it comes. You know, you're familiar with somebody named Jeffrey Gunlock. Is that correct? Yeah, he runs the double point. Yes, he does. Double line. May may I read just quickly, and then I'm just going to read something, and then you can sort of opine on this. This is from Jeffrey Gunlock. When it comes to measures of inflation, I define disturbingly up as anything more than 4% on a sustained basis. Right now, we are at 5.4% year-over-year CPI inflation for a second month in a row. And it is not probably, but probably understated. That's Jeffrey Gunlock. That's somebody that's a whole hell of a lot smarter than I am, and he thinks this is problematic. Why shouldn't we be worried, Dan Nathan? We should be worried. Bond yields tell you that just in the last couple days or last week or so, they're becoming a bit more worried. We know that the Fed has acknowledged inflation. We see the Biden administration trying to talk down oil. They're speaking to OPEC here. So people are starting to get a little worried. When I started talking about the transitory tantrum, I wasn't absolutely convinced that the higher prices aren't going to stick. The point was that everyone's yelling and screaming at the Fed to start raising interest rates because it was very evident to them that these prices would stick unless they started doing something. So my point was more about the screaming about raising rates. But all that being said, Guy, you've said it, I've heard you say this like a thousand times over the last eight years about what technology is doing to pricing and stuff like that. 
automation, what that's doing to wage growth. So I just feel like we're going to find some equilibrium on the way back. Gunlock's probably right about a lot of things and agreed he's much smarter than you and me put together. This has to be the most volatile part of the bull market that we've seen in a long time in terms of rates, commodities, all this stuff. But I will say this, tapers should start to get priced in. But here's what also is priced in, is that if taper goes bad, moral hazard, they come back and they say, you know what? We're going to slow that down. We're not going to do it. But I will say this, in the middle of all this taper talk, there was a $41 billion 10-year auction where the bid to cover, which means the orders versus what was for sale, was the highest since May 2020. And that was when yields were around 134 on the 10. But that was a sign for like, okay, deep breath. There's still demand, you know, you know, for bonds out there. Yields have shot up a little bit from there since then, but maybe it soaked up a bunch of demand. Maybe people were short bonds, you know, from the 115 level. And then when the yields went up, obviously you're short, obviously works and you cover. But it, that was interesting to see. And I think that gave people, and again, I'll say this, the people that are vaccinated, not sick, are the money managers out there. They're ignoring potentially what's going on and they're just going by the playbook. Why? Because it hasn't rewarded anyone to try to be bearish or to step out of line with liquidity in the market. Are you a fan of the sport football, Dan, Nathan? Which one? The one that we play here or the one they play over? One uh, that we season? play here in the Etas Unis, football. Oh, yeah. yeah, I like it. The American football, yeah. right? And the, the most important position, some would argue, is the guy that stands behind center. Is that correct? The quarterback. Yep. So what I like to do here is call a bit of an audible. May I do that, Dan? It's your show, guys. No, it's not. No, no, that's <laughs> false. There are three of us. It is our collective show. That's why I'm asking permission. This is a question to Danny Moses. Are you ready for this question? Ready. Over the last couple of days, this is something, and I don't want to make eyes people's eyes glaze over, so this is a yes or no question. The reverse Uh-oh. repo market, eyes glazed over. north of a trillion dollars, north of a trillion dollars, should we be worried about that? Yes or no? Yes, but no. Yes, but no. Yes, so you but didn't no. ask the question. Yes, but no. Nothing I am matters. telling you right now, yeah. the reverse repo market is something we should be talking about more often. It's something that in September 2019 blew up. That was the repo market. Now it's the reverse repo market. You can Google the machine and check it out. I am telling you now, I'm going on record saying this is going to be an issue sooner rather than later. Danny, please continue. You know, guy, a negative times a negative equals a positive. positive. Yes, it does. Got, it's an excellent point. You remember that you. movie? No. Edward James Almost? Excuse me? Edward James Almost? What was he in? Uh, I forgot the name. Well, of then why do you ask the well, question? On, but he was the police chief in no, Miami Vice. No, I know, but he was the prince. He was a math teacher, uh-huh. and they accuses all the students of cheating. He taught them calculus. They passed all the tests. It was called. I can't remember what it was called. Anyway, it always sticks to me. A negative times a negative equals a positive. That makes no right? sense. And maybe there's so many negatives out there that it's just it's just a positive guy. Let's you. just go with that. Look all right. You. I like that. Okay. Dan, I'm sure has some thoughts on this. I guess back to the gunlock thing and everything. I, I mean, the point is, is that we literally transferred trillions of dollars to our citizens, to our corporations. Danny just mentioned the airlines. I mean, we're just in this artificial state. So if gunlock has said, well, anything north of four percent seems outrageous or whatever. I mean, like, let's go back to see what prices what. what happened in the depths of the pandemic you know what i mean we saw i mean so so my point is we're not at any normalized levels and i'm just not ready to yell and scream about anything like that until we have a bit more clarity about how we're doing with this pandemic you bring up a great point though Dan. i know oil prices yeah. matter the most to airlines other than wages it's their biggest cost right it's, it's one of their biggest costs I, they're ignoring that don't worry about that. I won't hit our margin. By the way, Stand and Deliver is the name of the movie. Great movie. So you know, now Ed- you know Edward it? James almost. Oh, now you know. <laughs> All right. Anyway, <laughs> so I, I don't know when there? this ends, but when it ends, it's not going to be pretty. And I don't know what you're going to point to. What is it going to be? Is it the debt ceiling? Is it is it something where people just take a step back? Debt ceiling. That's so 2012. Well, let's talk about the debt that's ceiling because so I know you have. I mean, this is not. I'm, I don't think I want to call this a rip off the tape. What no. is that? This rot. is a synonym. We're not rotting. I'm not rotting. No. The synonym there is today. rot. But you want to talk about? You, Danny Moses would like to talk about the debt ceiling. We've please. talked about the debt ceiling on this show. We said this is something you're going to have to look out for. Of course, it won't matter. When's it happening? When's it well? It already happened? August 1st. It reset. There was a two year hiatus put in July 31st, 2019. So the debt was. 22 trillion on July 31st, 2019, right? So what they did was they said, all right, we'll freeze it so that you can spend whatever you want on whatever budgets that are out there. But on August 1st, 2021, that's it. That level's frozen. So you take what you borrowed up till then, which was 22 trillion. You then borrowed another six and a half trillion. So we're at 28 and a half trillion. We all agree. So now this treasury is going through extraordinary measures right now to kind of like get around it. But the Democrats can pass in the budget resolution, the three and a half trillion dollar bill that's out there, they can add it in there and get this thing passed with 50 votes, but they haven't done it yet. And so when they come back on August 23rd in the House and they're voting on the infrastructure and they're doing this budget resolution, this is going to be a very, obviously it's a political football. I don't think that we are going to default. Okay. I think they'll find a way around this. All I'm saying is 
this will be, there's not a lot going on in late August, right? right. Or this will be one of the things that's going on. But you'll, you'll hear more and more noise about it out there. And they'll blame the Democrats. Oh, you shouldn't have spent so much. Meanwhile, all the spending went on in 1890. And by the way, I want to bring something up in a second, but is this a market moving event? And as much as it should be, I agree with you, by the way, it absolutely should be. Just so we're clear on what the debt ceiling or debt limit is, it's the amount of money the U.S. government is authorized to borrow to meet their existing legal, legal obligations, Social Security, Medicare, military salaries, interest on debt tax refunds, all that stuff. So I just want to make sure everyone out there understands that. If you listened to last week's On the Tape, which I'm sure most of you did, we talked about, actually, Dan Nathan brought up the fact that banks were trading a little odd. I think, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but you said banks were really trading strangely. Yields were going lower, but banks stopped going lower. And you said maybe that was a bit of a tell, getting back to the poker conversation we had about Danny's grandmother going to the wind, all those fun My things. My mother. My mother. Not your grandmother? No, my mother. Oh, my mother. Mother. How's your mother doing, by the way? She's great. Your grandmother? My my mom says hi. She's a big fan. Uh, No, she's not. Is she she really? Yeah. That's an actor. She loves handsome Italian. Vince Scully and your mom on the same day. Who knew? But Dan, that was a great call by you. Banks have exploded to the upside since. My question is, in this environment, do banks have further upside? They feel like they like higher rates. They liked higher rates earlier this year. You know, the outperformance that we had once rates started going higher, once the vaccine implementation looked like it was kind of rolling off pretty well here in Q1, they started to go lower, though, when rates went lower. And so we know that they had great Q1, great Q2. I think the fear would be that we don't have the sort of recovery that valuations or at least suggest that we're going to have, right, with levels that we are in a lot of different sectors in the broad market. So I think that banks, you always come for them when the rates are, are, are moving higher and the economy looks like it's inflecting a little bit. And you know that there's a valuation trade to be had. Great call. But as well as the banks have been trading, there's something weird going on in the chips. And we would like to get ahead of things here on the tape. Are we looking at something in the form of Micron that might be a precursor, great word, by the way, to the broader chip market. Well, you used the point earlier about a tell, and really, what what are we trying to do here? We're trying to look at, so chips had massively outperformed. We knew that there were uh, major shortages. There's increasing demand for them, and all these industrial processes, obviously autos, we've heard the auto companies warn about that. And so the way I see it is this, is that, you know, Micron's come out, and they've made actually some not-so-great comments about consumer PC demand. And we know that, you know, there, there was unusual demand during the pandemic, work from home, all that sort of stuff. So Micron's down about 25% from its recent highs. We're seeing a lot of other names in the group also correcting a little bit. The SMH, the ETF that tracks the whole sector broke out. It would have been consolidating for the last three or four months, but a failed breakout. And I bring you back to your Amazon guy. You remember when that thing broke out prior sure to earnings? And we're like, oh, after that long consolidation, we're like, that's it. That that prior resistance to support, well, it was a fundamental piece of news that has taken it down 13 14%. So I'd say keep an eye on the semis here. Obviously, we're seeing lower lows in Micron. NVIDIA, this is a name guy that you have been pounding the table on. It split, I don't know how many for one, but right now, as I look at it, it's about $199. It's trading about $800. So what, do you do that math real quickly, guy? I think it's four to one. All right, there you go. Next week, they report earnings, and this stock is up 50% on the year. It's one of the major contributors to that breakout in the SMH. Next week, if that is disappointing and that stock has lower lows. I think it's going to take tech with Katie, it. Katie, bar the door. Listen, we're going to talk to Brian Kelly in a few minutes. Who has he's going to wax poetic about the Bitcoin? But I, you know, AMC reported earnings this week. This whole AMC thing, by the way, is a farce. And the last movie I saw in the movie theater was either The Shawshank Redemption or The Godfather. I don't remember which one it was. But you get to my age, does it really matter, Danny Moses? But AMC. Ex- Give me this AMC accepting Bitcoin. What are they up to? They threw it all out there. They brought out all the stocks. Meanwhile, Dan Nathan here, your buddy, a month ago, six weeks ago, said it said something to the effect of, why don't they just merge the GameStop? And he's like, why don't they meme together? Like, yeah, I actually had that call. But instead of doing a rip off the tape this week, I wanted to do something else that incorporated kind of this AMC. Are you guys ready for it? Wait, is it a new acronym? Nope. What are we oh. calling it? You remember the old movie phone? Remember sure. The Hello so, and welcome. Yeah. No, so can I never do the voice. Oh. Hello does. and welcome to movie phone. Okay, but I'm going to do this in a different way. Okay, you ready? Yes. Okay. Hello and welcome to meme phone. If you know the stock you want to learn more about, press one now. To choose from a list of meme stocks, press two now. If you'd like to open up a Robinhood account and let them choose your stock for you, press three now. If you'd like to learn about balance sheets, income statements, earnings per share, please check back later for coming attractions. I mean, seriously. That's, that's good. really good. All I could think of that entire time was the AMC. I feel so bad for these. Why do stocks that, you, let's say, 
you're at a 15 billion valuation, which you can't justify. Let's just start with that or 16, where, where the thing was. Okay. Then you come out with an incremental quote beat. Okay. Looks like a beat. Nothing justified 15 billion, but then you make that marginal move from 15 to 18 because, because why? Because the momentum is there because this is easily to see that this is lacks institutional sponsorship and God bless the planet of the apes. What's his name? Who's the Aaron? Roddy McDowell. No, Adam. <laughs> Adam Aaron, whatever he is, like trying to bring out all the stops and, you know, good for him. And by the way, I actually think he's authentic. I actually think he he praises these retail investors that are coming in and doing. And that's great. And it's great that they have representation. But when your first question on the call is about the dividend, I mean, that just shows the lack of awareness of anything. Right. Guy Adami kind of nailed it. I think we we're in fast money when that that news came out. And he said, you know what? It might have been with the news about that they were going to accept Bitcoin. It might have been it really impactful if they said we're actually going to take some of that cash that we just raised in the markets and bought Bitcoin yeah. with it, right? I mean, so give give us your little no, riff on that. That was a great call. I think time. it would have been much more impactful if you made that transition. Listen, he talks about how cash-rich the company is. You know what? You've gone all out. You might as well go further out the curve and, and put Bitcoin on your balance sheet. Right? I don't think the bondholders will allow that. But It's yeah. interesting you say that. I mean, I don't know if it's the bondholders or the board of directors that has to approve that, but you're right. I mean, I'm not sure if that's going to cut muster, but you know what? You're going down the rabbit hole so far. When you're all in, you might as well go all in, baby. Push all those chips. But I'm going to put... What did you say? You hit four buttons. Four was, if you want to know, give me that one again. For four? Yeah. If you want to learn about balance sheets right. and whatnot. Yeah. Well, well, I'm going to press five here. And press five <laughs> is for a pause in this conversation because in a minute, we're going to have the crypto baller himself, Brian Kelly, who's got a lot to say about a lot of things. Stay with us. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash micros. Brian Kelly is the founder and CEO of BKCM, a digital currency investment firm. He's the author of The Bitcoin Big Bang, How Alternative Currencies Are About to Change the World, published all the way back in 2014. So check it out, people. You may also know him as our longtime co-panelist on CNBC's Fast Money. He is the Bitcoin baller and our good friend. BK, welcome back to On the Tape. Well, BK, how are you, Brian Kelly? It's been a long, you know, long time. Bitcoin back above 45,000. You're basking in the sunlight of cryptocurrencies on this August day. How's everything going, BK? It's, it's good, Guy Adami. It's good to be on with you guys. I miss you. We miss you as well. I miss seeing you in studio, but you know, you've gotten so busy where fast money's an afterthought for you. Is that correct? <laughs> no, not so much that, but I haven't been in New York today. I'm out in Wyoming, so I haven't been in New York much at all. I did one show at the NASDAQ. I'd love to get back there, though. I just walked from Penn Station about four blocks. I saw 400 homeless people. It's 110 degrees. You should stay wherever you are and do not come back here. That sounds awesome. I'm going to cancel that flight tonight. Danny is sweating like Paris Hilton <laughs> taking the SATs. I love that line. It's one of my favorite lines. He is. Call that He's sweating. Hot. You call schwitzing. that schwitzing. Schwitzing. He's, He's hot. schwitzing. Right. Broadcast I, news. This is Albert my Brooks. sweating season. From May to October, really. So I feel you, Danny. I thought that was from January to December. <laughs> All right, Beeks, let's talk about it. You are a returning guest of On The Tape Podcast. Thank you for rejoining us here. When we last spoke to you, it was February. I think Bitcoin was just breaking out above its all-time highs made in January. And it kept on going. And volatility has obviously uh, been a feature, not a bug, when you look at these kind of peak-to-trough declines. What's going on here? We just saw Bitcoin bounce off of that $28,000, $29,000 level. It's up, what, 50%? It feels like in a straight line here. BK, what the heck's going on? Yeah, pretty much a straight line. So, I mean, the one thing that, that has really changed this year is kind of the nature of the buyer of Bitcoin. It's become a lot more institutional. And that buyer, and frankly, seller too, is driven more by macroeconomic news than just, hey, I want to buy some Bitcoin because yeah, I think the world's coming to an end or it's the money of the future, right? So a lot of institutions are using this in place of gold. And so what we've kind of seen is Bitcoin trade with what's going on with the Federal Reserve, with what's going on globally in GDP, that type of thing. 
And so, you know, we saw that that high above 65,000 or so and dropped down. And a lot of that was a lot of these institutions that had bought in, we were all excited about, started to sell out because they were thinking maybe growth has peaked, inflation is transitory, I don't need as much Bitcoin as I used to. And so there we go. And then the straight line up, you know, if you look at that, this to me is about infrastructure and potentially, you know, they're talking about the taper relatively soon, but if you look at what's going on, we've had peak growth. And so I don't think the taper is going to be that strong. So I think that's what Bitcoin's pricing into that. All right, BK, I got to ask you, I got to push back a little bit. I mean, the, the fact is you had been pounding the table in that crypto winter from the highs in, you know, in early January of 2017. It meandered, you know, well below 10,000 most of the time in 18, 19. And even until last summer, about this time when it kind of broke out above uh, 10,000. I just don't understand. You, you had been making the point, though, that this wall of institutional money coming for this this macro asset class and you were you were just so right but i just don't understand that why any of those institutions would look to sell the scarce asset that they are using in replace of that inflation hedge gold that's been used for hundreds of years why would they sell that doesn't make a lot of sense to me please help me understand well we heard from some of them publicly that they had doubled their money they had bought in and around a $30,000 level and sold out at the $60,000 level so What most institutions are not used to is the level of volatility and the type of returns that you can see in crypto. So if you have a 5% asset that 5% of your fund that's doubled in less than a year, a lot of risk managers are going to say, listen, take some off the table. It's too big of a portion of the fund. Maybe the thesis has is weakening a bit. Let's take some off the table. I guess that's my point is that the character of the investors today is very different than the character of the investors in 2017. Because the one thing that got institutions into this asset class is that, you know, they looked at it and said, all these people who bought in 2017 held on, they're holders, right? They held on all the way through the bear market. And even Druckenmiller said, what asset class do you see that in where something goes down by 70, 80% and everybody holds on to it? So institutions are a different type of investor than the retail investor that has been in this so far. So I think there's a lot of pressure from institutions, money managers, companies to say that they're doing something in crypto. And I guess the bullish case would be a lot of people have announced it. Some probably haven't even bought it yet or started to incorporate it into their business. But what's been really interesting to me is the divergence or lack of divergence between the stock market and crypto. At some point, it will converge. And I think you just brought up a great point. It will converge because if the stock market were to get hit and crypto's left and crypto outperforms, at what level do these institutional money managers, not talking about companies that are using it in the, you know in their core business have to take it down and just can't be that exposed. You're spot on when it comes to risk assets. The one thing that I've said for the last, I don't know, six months or so, maybe longer, is that since August of 2020, when we had the Fed Jackson Hole meeting a year ago, and they basically said that they're going to print money until the economy gets better and maybe beyond that. Bitcoin has been a pro-cyclical inflation hedge, but that makes it highly correlated with equities and risk on. So, you know, we've seen correlation on a 30-day rolling basis of about 30 to 40% of Bitcoin in the S&P 500. It's even a higher correlation, north of 40%, 30-day rolling correlation with copper. So that's how to think about it. And so I completely agree with you. And we've seen it where if the rest of the risk markets sell off, then Bitcoin gets hit too. No matter how bullish you are on it, what happens is you're sitting on a macro fund, everything else is down, your fund's down 5% for the month, and the risk manager taps you on the shoulder and says, why do you have this big Bitcoin position? We're losing money elsewhere, and it's becoming a bigger part of our fund because we're losing money elsewhere. You got to sell it. And so that is the dynamic that we didn't see in the 2017 bull market, but we are seeing now. And to me, that's just the maturation of Bitcoin as an asset class. So BK, you can throw all those fancy correlations, all that math at us. But you know, the only thing that I know is that the S&P 500 has not had a material correction in close to a year now. So that would be a 10%. And I think back to Q4 2018, Guy, how much did the S&P 500 go down in a straight line? October 2018 to December of 2018, the course of about a month and a half, the S&P 500 went down 19.9%, Dan. That's right. 
And then Bitcoin Beaks got cut in half. And then in the pandemic crash from February to March 2020, the S&P 500 went down 35% in a straight line, right? And so then Bitcoin got cut in half again. So my question to you is, we haven't had a real sell-off in the equity market. What what is that kind of, what do you think is going to happen if we have a 20% plus correction here? If we have a 20% plus correction with the economic environment the way that it is today, Bitcoin will go down. The only way that I see Bitcoin going up and equities going down is that if equities stop responding to the Federal Reserve and every central bank printing money and Bitcoin continues to respond to that. That would be the only scenario that I see. And I'm not sure. Right now, I don't see that as being the most probable scenario. BK. Big fan, as you know. Indulge me for a few seconds, if you will, please. Are you a fan of George C. Scott, the actor? I mean, I think fan would be, first of all, great to be on with you, Guy, but I think fan <laughs> would be a bit of a stretch because I can't even picture what he looks like right okay, now. But, but George, George C. Question. Scott, he portrayed a general George S. Patton yeah. in the, in oh, the right, title right, right, movie. Right, with the pants, Patton. yeah. And you recall he was standing in a field and he shouted out to nobody in particular, I read your book. Do you remember that scene? Oh, yeah, I read your book, Rommel, right? Is That's that what exactly, it was? The Desert Fox, exactly. He read, well, yes. I read your book and I didn't read the chapter where if Bitcoin goes higher, gold goes lower. Will you please just finish the <laughs> argument once and for all? Is the rise of Bitcoin the demise of gold? Yes or no, BK? So it's a, that's a great question and something that I have struggled with a little bit recently. I do think Bitcoin is, you can think of Bitcoin as the tech disruptor of gold. And I think over a long period of time, let's call it a decade or more, I think you can easily see gold go by the wayside and Bitcoin become the new digital gold. It just makes a lot more sense for this age. It has all of the characteristics that gold has, plus I can send it over the internet and use it globally. So it just makes a lot more sense than gold does. That being said, the history of gold is not going to go away. There's still plenty of people that buy gold. But what's confounding, and, and I, I just kind of, kind of find interesting, is you know you look at U.S. 10-year rates. And then you look at the copper to gold ratio. And there's just massive divergence in that right now when there shouldn't be. And I wonder, and I don't have the answer to this, but I wonder if Bitcoin is having an impact on that particular indicator. Are people not using gold as an inflation hedge? It seems to me, and this is pure observation, no data necessarily to back it up, but it seems to me that gold tends to go up when you have a stagflationary environment, or at least where people think there's going to be stagflation, and Bitcoin seems to go up when you're getting a pro-cyclical, cyclical rally, if you will. I would say that 95% of people that own Bitcoin don't even know about Bretton Woods or any of the gold standard or when we came off of it, which means a lot because there's no history of it with people. I just don't know when it became a store of value, so to speak, or why it is an inflation hedge. Can you explain what makes it an inflation hedge? Because I just, I can't get my arms around that. It's the same scarce asset that gold is. Gold doesn't have quite a finite supply. Bitcoin does have a finite supply. So for the same reason that people use gold as an inflation hedge, you can now substitute Bitcoin. You're familiar with Michael Saylor, the CEO of MicroStrategies. He's of the belief that at some point in time, Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies, I should say, will surpass the market cap of gold, which is currently either side of $10 trillion. Do you find yourself in a similar camp? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a very good argument to be made for that. And you have to start with the base case that Bitcoin disrupts gold completely. And then from there, you can say, okay, well, Bitcoin has done everything that gold can that did, but plus I can use it as a global currency on the internet. That extra plus has some value associated with it. And I have no idea what that value is. Is it a trillion dollars or $10 trillion? But once you get to that $10 trillion market cap and Bitcoin has successfully disrupted gold, then there's some other value to being able to use it all over the world. Bitcoin versus <laughs> Ethereum. Since those are the two horses here that we're really running. I know they have different applications. I know. But talk about your mindset on those right now. If you had $100, where would you put it? I'm going to upset all the Bitcoin maximalists out there if they when they listen to this. But I would say Ethereum. And I'm not going to get into whether or not Ethereum is going to flip Bitcoin or not. But just on a relative value basis, where Ethereum is trading today, the use cases for Ethereum, it just seems 
undervalued relative to Bitcoin. So I think there's an awful lot of room to catch up. Now, if I look at Bitcoin and I say, okay, what's my kind of upper range on it? Let's say it's 100 to 150K sometime, you know, in the next six months, maybe before year end. That puts Bitcoin at about a two to three trillion dollar market cap, which would be about 20 percent of gold's market cap, which would get you just to that kind of threshold where you need 20 percent of market share to kind of be considered a successful disruptor. That makes sense to me for right now. Whereas Ethereum, you've got a couple things going on there. They just passed what is called EIP 1559, which is their upgrade to go to what's called proof of stake. And so what this does is it now takes Ethereum and instead of making it a finite supply, in a lot of scenarios, if it's used enough, the supply can actually decline. So in that sense, it might be a better store of value than Bitcoin. The second part to the Ethereum kind of bold case is that it's moving to what's called proof of stake, which really simply is software mining versus kind of hardware mining where Bitcoin is. But what happens with that is you get effectively a yield. So you're going to get, if you stake your Ethereum, you're going to get some kind of a yield over the year. Let's call it 5% or 10% or something like that. That's generally how it works with proof of stake networks. Now that yield is what they call an inflation reward. So it's not a true yield, but here's what I know about Wall Street. They know finite amount of supply and then they go, oh boy, I get paid a yield in an appreciating asset like Ethereum. I think I want to buy that one. So that's kind of the bold case for Ethereum and why I think if I only had the choice of Bitcoin or Ethereum today, I'd put a hundred bucks on Ethereum. You know, before Dan's question, I just want to be truthful with our audience. I only made it up to EIP 1480 BK. I'm still making my way up to EIP 1559. I mean, you got to be kidding me with some of this shit. So, so, EIP. <laughs> so, so Beeks, that is a joke that Guy Dami tried out on Packy McCormick. He and it a, went he, over he, well he, he as well. He was a prior guest. He runs the Not Boring Capital and the, I guess it's a podcast and a newsletter of the same name. And he wrote back in May, and, and I think you might have read it, a post called own the internet. It was basically a deep dive bull case for Ethereum. So I, I think you just made one really interesting point that maybe a lot of lay people, maybe more stock market people like us, you made the point that Ethereum might end up being a better store of value than Bitcoin because this move to proof of stake is going to be deflationary. So more scarce. Could you see a world where you add that to like, is that a, an institutional thesis for the bull case here? And wouldn't that just kind of make Bitcoin the, the kind of ugly redheaded stepchild in the crypto world? And right now we got Bitcoin at 850 billion market cap and you have Ethereum um, at 360 or so. And I think this is fascinating. Coinbase on their Q2 call the other day said that they actually saw greater volume in Q2 trading in Ethereum that they did in Bitcoin. Yeah. So, I mean, listen, I'll let you deal with the with crypto Twitter on uh, and calling Bitcoin the redheaded stepchild. That That's all yours. You own that. Buddy. I'm not going to dive into that. <laughs> pool. But here's where the bull case for Bitcoin comes in as a store of value or is I kind of think of Bitcoin as your base money, kind of like the monetary base we have here in the U.S. And proof of work is a more secure system or a, it's a more secure way to ensure the security of the entire system. And its proof of stake is unproven as a secure way. You can attack a proof of stake network more easily than you can a proof of work network. And more importantly, because the Bitcoin blockchain goes back to 2009, the longer that a blockchain runs, the more secure it gets. So it depends on what you're using it for. But if you're simply using Bitcoin as digital gold and you're storing it in a custodian or in some kind of digital wallet that you have and you want to use it only for that, then the use case for Bitcoin and for proof of work, you want it to be the most secure thing that it can be. Whereas something with if Ethereum goes to proof of stake and it's it's a little less secure, maybe you don't mind that because you're using it for transactions, you're you're using it to pay for gas on the Ethereum network. But maybe you don't want to hold all your assets in that because of the security issue. Uh, so that's that would be the bullish case for Bitcoin not being 
adopted. I like what you did there, BK. Danny's going to segue into the infrastructure conversation, but I want to do a little PSA for our folks out there since you mentioned steak about nine freaking times. The best steakhouse in New York City continues to be Sparks. Back in the day, we would go <laughs> all the time. What, one dude, of the greatest guy, wine lists n- ever. 1992 called. They want their reservation at and Sparks And number two, back. we what used to go to the Post House, which, was in the, the Post which House. is in the lobby, I believe, of the Lowell Hotel, the aged Cajun ribeye, BK. Do you want to sort of opine on that before Danny comes in? I have been to all of those, and I'll have to say, for me, the best steakhouse in New York is Wolfgang's. I, I oh, that's, know, no, you know, you know what? Stop. Just so you're embarrassing yourself. First of all, Sparks. I mean, come on. I mean, well, who did you go right, there hold with? On. But, but wait, hold on. BK, John you, Gotti? You, you have joined with me, and, and, and Danny and I are going later this afternoon after we tape this after the Fast Money program. We're going to the Fort Charles Prime Rib. Come on, give it to me. You love that place. Uh, that place is good. I, but, I, you know, I'm not sure I consider that a, a New York steakhouse. So it's a great place. Well, it's a brand new but institution. You consider that a, a steakhouse, like a proper steakhouse, like a Sparks or Wolfgang's Post House is good though. I'll give it to Post House. Gone. That place has been gone for twenty years. I'm just. I, you asked me a question. I brought, actually you didn't ask me. I brought it up myself. Sorry, Danny. Oh, it was continue. the proof of steak. I got you. Well, no, hungry. he said it like nine freaking times. Proof of what does that even All right, mean? So Danny wants to get down to some real business. Please, Danny. Here, I think. No, Please. no. I mean, there's some great steakhouses down in Washington, also. But you know what's really funny to me? Forget about the infrastructure bill and what was or wasn't in it as it relates to crypto. It's a huge positive for the crypto industry in general that this is even being discussed in Washington. But the irony is not lost, I'm sure, on you and many others that the whole idea of Bitcoin is to not do anything with the government. But I think people now crave some type of regulation to protect. But this is where it gets in. Ginsler is looking to protect the investor, right, the small investor. And in doing that, he also wants to actually protect crypto in a way where he says, "Okay, I'll approve it in the futures market you know, as a mutual fund, but not as an open-ended ETF yet. And people got upset. I mean, the prices of crypto didn't matter. They went up. But to me, it's a net positive that it's even being discussed. But the irony, I'd love to get your thoughts on that, that the government is now coming in. You know, it should be taxed. It's a great revenue source. That's one way to validate it, right, to a degree. But how do you reconcile the irony of, okay, it's now overseen by the government and we're fine with that? It's a great point. And there's been a huge debate uh, within the crypto community as the infrastructure bill was going on, and it really came down to two sides. There's one side that says Bitcoin was designed to be state resistant. So let them ban it. Let them regulate. Let them do whatever they want. Why are we even fighting? Because Bitcoin is state resistant. And the more that the government tries to take it over, the stronger it gets and the better it becomes. That's one side of the argument. The other side of the argument is that We have, at least in my opinion, this bull market has been driven, the bull side of it has been driven by institutional adoption, and the bear side of it has been regulatory uncertainty or fears of it being banned. So when you look at what happened over the last week or so, to me, I agree with you, it's it's a positive. Any incremental step away from a full-on ban of Bitcoin I think is an incremental positive for the price of Bitcoin. We can argue you know, whether or not it's good for the core value proposition of being able to opt out of the traditional financial system with Bitcoin. But in terms of the price of Bitcoin, I think it's a net positive. Following on that, you know, in general, within the macro of the crypto sector, I know you've actually come out on Tether in the past and you've been skeptical, but how do we think about these stable coins, we just saw news today on USDC as it relates to Coinbase and the lack of attestation, I guess, that there are reserves to hold. How do you reconcile those two things as an avid early crypto supporter to call out kind of the bad actors and the impact? Because that's, I think, you're asking for regulatory oversight when you have these kind of bad actors that are out there. I want to get your thoughts on that. Yeah. So let's go with two different types of stable coins. There's the algorithmic stable coins, which attempt to pegged to some kind of asset class using an algorithm. I am highly skeptical of those. They haven't worked today. They haven't worked in three to 400 years of central banking. I'm very highly skeptical that 30 people have figured out an algorithm that keeps a coin stable. So I think it's an interesting experience, but it's not. I'm not interested in it. Then you come to the US dollar-backed stable coins, whether it be Tether, USDC, BUSD, any of those. And I simply look at them as junk bonds that don't pay you any interest. Because when you look at what you're really facing off against in the case of USDC, which is, you know, you face off against Circle. That's who you're facing off against. You have to go through Circle to get your dollar back. So you are effectively 
saying, I am going to lend circle money. I'm not going to get paid any interest for that. And I hope that I get it back. Now, I'm not saying by any means that circle is not going to give it back to you, but that's how I think about them. But if Tether proves to be a fraud in general, do you think it has no impact on the price of Bitcoin in general? No, I think it has a big impact on the price of Bitcoin, but not the way that you're thinking. I think Bitcoin goes up. Okay, because money disappears and no one owns what they thought they did, so they want to go out and well, reclaim. There is some portion of the people that use and hold Tether that either cannot or do not want to get a U.S. dollar bank account. And so what we've seen in the past, when Tether has had some issues, if you look back, it was a period of time, uh, I think it was like almost every six months that Tether actually had to switch banks. Their bank account was closed. Every time that that happened, when Tether switched banks, Bitcoin went up. Because if you're holding Tether and you're afraid of that and you can't convert that to U.S. dollar, the only place to go with any type of liquidity is to buy Bitcoin with it. BK, will you indulge me again? Guy here, by the way, how are you? (laughs) Hey, guys. Are you an Odd Couple fan? I know you are. I mean, I was, yeah. On November 13th, uh, remember that? That's how the Odd Couple started. Why do I bring up November 13th? Don't answer that. Because on November 13th, somebody named Ron Artest was born. You say, why are you talking about Ron Artest? Because he changed his name to Meta Word Peace. And now his name is Meta Sandiford Artest. Why do I bring that up, BK? Because explain to me what the metaverse is all about and how all this crypto stuff plays in. So what is the metaverse? The metaverse is basically a universe or a community online, right? So you think about any of these games, these virtual reality games that you might play. You think about back in Dan's day, there was a thing called The Sims where you can create your own virtual city. That is a metaverse. And what's happening is you've got these virtual cities and these virtual communities going on and people are trying to figure out how do I apply crypto to this? And what they've started to figure out, at least on the gaming side, and those who have kids that play games now, something like Roblox and stuff like that, they're wrapping it all together. They're wrapping together kind of the closed economy of a metaverse, plus gaming, plus this crypto. And by the way, there's some NFTs in there too. And it's just a fascinating combination of this world that lives only on the internet. Wasn't Ready Player One metaverse-ish? Yeah, exactly. Spielberg's always ahead of things. Right. And so this is that next iteration using crypto. And and I'll go just a little deeper, and this is going to be years off, but you know, we have these NFTs now and everybody's going crazy over them. My view on NFTs is there's going to be a day, and I think it's probably going to be soon, where you're going to have a digital twin online. Excuse me. You're going to have a digital wardrobe, a digital closet, and in there you're going to have digital Air Jordans that are produced by Nike, and there's only going to be a limited amount of those, and you're going to be able to wear them in your virtual world. And that's what this is going to look like. And to me, that's where the the entire kind of – monetization, and and that's where the corporations can come in. We're just at the tip, the beginning of this with all these NFTs and metaverse. I don't like to talk about personal stocks that I own, but I own this little penny stock, you know, Atari, who it's like Pong F is a symbol. But my point is they've been in the metaverse. They actually have a brand name. They have a token. Like I can get the token aspect on companies that actually produce something you can actually exchange it for. They've had concerts from big time people where you can only see it in the metaverse. So there are certain companies that are actually perfectly made to go into this. Yeah, no, totally agree. There are companies that today have a business model or have a product that suits it very well. There are other companies that are startups that have created metaverses, and I think there'll be more. Gaming's a natural place for metaverse economy to take hold. The thing about gaming right now is none of the gaming people, none of the gaming producers want to actually open up their ecosystem, open up their closed metaverse, if you will, elsewhere, because they're taking all the revenue. But eventually that'll, I I see those walls coming down. And eventually, like I said, you're going to have a digital twin. It's going to just look just like you. That's going to be your avatar for everything you do online. It'll be an NFT because it's unique and you're unique. And that's how you'll interact with people online. 
Well, Dan has a real twin, but Dan, what are you, what, what are your thoughts on that? I, I do have a real twin. We are we are fraternal, oh, as God. they ah. say. He's bald. I have a great head of hair. As, you do. As all know. You do. A nice you mane. Really well, I'm envious. Well, listen, you know, it, it's funny. Speaking about the metaverse to a bunch of like 50-year-old dudes like us, it's kind of like we're never going to be in there. We're actually never going to have digital twins, you know, that sort of thing. Guy's still trying to figure out how to- uh, I have a digital twin already. His name is Sylvester Stallone. As a yeah. matter of fact, we're texting back and forth here, BK. You might be familiar <laughs> with his work. Rocky is in the boxing hall. Of fame. Okay, I have a philosophical problem. Did you know that? By the I way, I, how would I know that? I love telling guys things he doesn't know. So I have a question: Why isn't Roy Scheider in the fishing hall of fame? He should hundred percent. No, Robert Shaw should be in or the Robert fishing. Robert Shaw. Hall. So anyway, yes. sorry, sorry. Wait, wait, wait. Is De Niro in the boxing hall of fame for Raging Bull? Should coming to a metaverse near you. So, BK, we got to talk about DeFi, right? Isn't that a major bull case for Ethereum? If you think about decentralized finance, you think about the opportunities to disintermediate these existing processes and that sort of thing, it seems massive. We've all, you know, we've seen some massive bull markets and stuff built on Ethereum, NFTs, obviously, earlier this year. What is DeFi? Talk to the people. What is it? And is this one of the reasons why you want to own Ethereum over Bitcoin? Yeah, it is. It's one of the reasons why I got into crypto in the first place. So, DeFi is short for decentralized finance. And all it really means is that instead of having a bank or some sort of financial intermediary in the middle, you use this new software called crypto and blockchain technology to code into software what a normal bank would do. So it'll do lending. You can do derivatives. You can do equities. And I'm not going to get into the regulatory part of it, but you have the, the ability now with software to replicate almost everything that traditional financial service firms do. And to me, that was one of my aha moments back in 2013 when I started looking at this. And I said, wow, this could disintermediate, meaning remove the intermediary, also known as financial institutions, from the entire financial ecosystem. And if I look back and say, all right, what other industries were disintermediated? Well, look what email did to the post office. A software program disrupted the old model, which is the post office. What has YouTube done to networks and media? What have podcasts done to radio and other media stations? All these software programs have completely disrupted, made it peer-to-peer, and that's what DeFi does for finance. I think DeFi's got a huge runway ahead, and it's, it, there's a big bull case for DeFi, and most of it's built on Ethereum. Uh, so that's another bull case for Ethereum. I'm going to pull another guy here. So I didn't get to say my favorite steakhouse, which is Del Frisco's, or it was, you know, you know, that was where we always, don't give me a handshake, but in order to eat it, you need a fork. Can you explain to me this forking, how I think about this and when the next fork is, and do people trade around that? And what does it mean? So to fork a crypto or to fork any piece of software, it just means to copy it. So it's just a, a control C basically is what you're doing. The difference is in when it becomes to crypto, what you're looking at when you have a blockchain, the blockchain is the database that holds all the information, every transaction. Think of it as your, your spreadsheet, holds every transaction that ever happened on that particular network. So that's the record of it. When you fork something and you copy and paste that one spreadsheet, and put it on another spreadsheet. In the past, you have one version. Going forward, you're going to have two versions of the future. So that's the fork. You copy one, paste it over, and use it for something else. Use it for other transactions. So that's what a fork is. is a copy-paste, and generally there's some tweaks made to one side or the other to make sure it functions in a particular way for whatever the use case is. There is a way, you know, people do trade around those. The history of forks have shown that you can have these, what, what's called a chain split. So you end up with two separate coins, two stores of value, and then the market decides what each store of value is worth. So you can trade around that. There's some money to be made off of it. I would say over the last year or two, the effect of that kind of trading around a split or a fork has deteriorated quite a bit. It's not what it used to be, but that's essentially what a fork is. Well, BK, I forking love you. And on behalf of Danny <laughs> Moses and Dan Nathan, I want to thank you for appearing on the tape. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet.
If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.